Good evening, and let's get started once again tonight, finishing out, if the Lord will allow us, Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18, profane power in an unholy trinity. Now at the beginning of chapter 13, after seeing Satan very much against his will, doing the best that he can do to be the restrainer, being forced out of heaven... When the power of God is granted to Michael the archangel and his angels that fight against the dragon and Satan comes down to those on earth, woe to them for he comes down in great anger because he knows that his time is short. He goes to the only place that's left to go, backed into a corner. It's time to fight the madman's fight. And he enters into the dead body of remains of the Antichrist. Once simply a man of lawlessness, he becomes the man of lawlessness. Contrary to the popular opinion of the day, we don't see the Antichrist in Scripture burst onto the scene as some kind of superhuman ruler out of nowhere. As a matter of fact, on the contrary, according to the book of Daniel, he rises to power through flattery and politics, and once having seized it, begins what is will be one of the bloodiest political campaigns that has ever existed in history, becoming the bloodiest at this point here in chapter 12 and 13, but... His early campaigns are marked by as much defeat and failure as they are by success. And finally, at the halfway point of the tribulation, at three and a half years, he receives a mortal wound. He lays dead for three days. Upon being reanimated, necromancing, if you will, is what the Old Testament would call it, by the spirit of the dragon himself, he becomes what we would call the Antichrist proper. Satan is not satisfied with only a portion of the counterfeit. The glory of God is tied up in the mystery of the Trinity. and He intends to fake the whole enchilada in Revelation chapter 13 verses 11 through 18. After calling for the endurance and the faith of the saints, John writes and says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. It also causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Here we see the rise of the second beast of the revelation of Jesus Christ, a beast that 
verse 11, rises out of the earth. In Daniel, when we see the kingdoms that are going to rise among men and all of the archetypes of the Antichrist that come along with them, each carrying a portion of his spirit and a portion of his image until we come to the full consummation thereof that we see in Revelation chapter 12 and 13, the beast of Daniel are said to rise both from the sea and from the land. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 3, it says the four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. This is what we saw with the first beast, the Antichrist proper of chapter 13. And yet, just down the page in chapter 7, verse 17, speaking of this very same vision, these four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth and from out of the nations. And like we spent some time a couple of weeks back at the beginning of chapter 13, we can say that both of the images of earth and sea are used to describe the origin of the governments and the men that head them as being that of a Gentile origin. They come out of the tossed up miry seas of men. They come from the nations of this earth. And therefore... The significance between the rise of the first beast that comes out of the sea and the second beast that comes out of the earth is most likely simply to differentiate these two as separate individuals. And indeed they are. There's only one way to get a trinity. He's described in Revelation chapter 13 verse 11 as having two horns like a lamb. And I would point out to you that precision is necessary here. He is not described as being like a lamb, but simply as having two horns like a lamb. And if you've ever been around a lamb, well, they're the mutton version of what you would call a button buck. Lambs don't have horns proper. They've just got two little nubs that are just almost flat. Look like a piece of hard, scaly, almost fingernail-like material. Throughout, throughout Hebrew apocalyptic writing, the horns are viewed as the, the, the statement of power and authority that is possessed by the one who holds them. And this beast unlike the first, has no power of his own. As a matter of fact, I want you to notice something that I think is of particular importance. In chapter 13, verse 12, in chapter 13, verse 12, it says that it, this being the second beast that has these two horns like a lamb, it exercises all the authority of the first beast. Where? In its presence. Now, just like we saw with the first beast, just like we saw with the Antichrist, what we see going on here is a counterfeit. The problem is, is that as powerful as Satan is, he is not omniscient. And as quickly as he seems to move, he is not omnipresent. He is not always powerful, and he is not always present. He is not all-powerful and He is not always present. He is limited. And when you've got a singularity trying to imitate a trinity, apparently it's important that you keep them all in a nice tight little circle because the power is only coming 
from one place. This is not what you see in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, where each is fully God and yet specific in office. What you see here is a singular being trying to fake being a trinity. He exercises all the authority of the first beast, but he does so in his presence. An authority of the first beast that, as we've already seen, is based on a counterfeit resurrection. But he doesn't only have horns like a lamb, he has the voice, it says, like a dragon, for the voice in the agenda of the second beast finds its origin in the same place as the agenda of the first beast, that being the ancient dragon, that serpent the devil that was thrown down, Satan himself. This is not being done through an intermediary. The guardian cherub will be handling this all to his own. The activities of the second beast are to initiate and to maintain the worship of the first beast. And if this sounds familiar to you, it should. For in the Trinity, this is the role of the Holy Spirit. The first beast will demand the worship of the world. This is not a new concept just now being revealed to us by John in the Revelation. Instead, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, years earlier, Paul had already written reminding the Thessalonians of the things that he had already taught them about this subject the first time that he was in their presence. And he said, Who, that being the Antichrist, opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So here in Revelation chapter 13, verse 4 and verse 8, and you go back to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, Daniel chapter 8, verse 12. All of this is about taking the focus of glory and worship away from the one true creating and sustaining and saving God that deserves it and instead focusing it on Himself. And He's got a guy set aside just for the task, the worship of the first beast is accomplished through the work of the second beast. From here on out, in the Revelation, referred to as the false prophet. Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, the two are linked together and identified as being one and the same. Where it says that the beast was captured and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. You see the same connection made in Revelation 16.13 and Revelation 20.10. And so here you have this second beast once again rising out of the earth, out of the, 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 the population and the nations of man. He comes with a singular mission. And that is to elicit the worship of the Antichrist. His power comes directly from the same source that the Antichrist's power comes. It comes directly from the dragon. And in verses 13 through 18, we see his methodology. And it could not be more different from the methodology of the Holy Spirit, how he elicits the worship of the beast. Verse 13, it says, He performs great signs even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. Now that is somewhat indicative of the Holy Spirit, but that's 
the surface level gee whiz shiny is about where it stops by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast it deceives those who dwell on the earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain And also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for its number, for it is the number of man. And his number is 666. He comes forth doing great signs. Specifically, <clears throat> fire from heaven is the first one that is mentioned, a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit's work through God's prophets. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 36 through 39. You're familiar with the narrative about Elisha and the prophets of Baal that at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that You are God in Israel and that I am Your servant and that I have done all of these things at Your Word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that You, O Lord, are God. You have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench and all the people saw it and they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. We see that same fire being called down by God's prophets in Revelation chapter 11, verse 5. We're speaking... Of the two witnesses, it says, If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. John the Baptist said, That I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who comes after me, whose sandals I am not fit to untie, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he did. Pentecost, the empowerment to be witnesses for His name fell upon His apostles like tongues of fire and men that could speak nothing but Galilean Greek were understood by men from around the world of every tongue that you could imagine. Here you see the opposite of that. Fire falling from heaven to deceive, not to enlighten. Dumb objects speaking words of death and deception. Not simple men speaking words of life by the glory of God. He makes the image of the beast speak. Now Scripture tells us that idols themselves are silent. That they are dumb, inanimate objects. In Psalm 135, verse 15 through 16, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 19 through 20, it is written, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! 
to a stylet sewn, arise. Can this thing teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all of the earth keep silent before Him. Man, when you think about the comparison and the contrast between the dumb, mute, inanimate object idols of the pagans, of the Gentile masses, and God Almighty who speaks from fire on top of the mountain to Moses so that the people shudder and say, don't let Him speak to us again or we will surely die. That's about as far as east is from west. Idols are dumb. They don't speak. Stone doesn't arise. But this one does. The beast, the image of the beast is animated. The false prophet gives breath to the image. Notice it says that he was allowed to do this. You can take that one of two ways. You can take that to mean that he is allowed by God to go this far in his rebellion. The way that Satan looked at Jesus and said, all of this world belongs to me for it has been given unto my hands. The way that we look at the narrative here in chapter 13 just up the page and back in Daniel where it says the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them for a time, times, and half a time. Here it calls for the endurance of the saints. And certainly, certainly, ultimately that is the truth. There seems to also be a manner in which he is allowed to function as far as the dragon wants him to go as well. Because this world has not been handed into the power of the false prophet. It has been handed for the season into the power of the dragon. I think you can legitimately say that both are true with the ultimate authority and the ultimate allowance ending at the throne of God Himself. Literally, it was given to Him. It is a power not His own. And what we see here is a counterfeit creation. Once again, look what it says. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed, to be slain. And so, it's not just that He gave it breath and He gave it a voice and He gave it the ability to take action. He gave it breath And out of that singular giving, it had a voice and it could take action. I would compare and contact. This is not three different miracles that are being spoken of, counterfeit miracles. This is not three different signs that are being spoken of that the dragon is producing through the false prophet. It is a singular sign in giving it breath that then results in further activity of speaking and acting. What you see here is counterfeit creation. What you see here in the language is a picture that is the the photo negative of what God did in the garden with Adam. When He breathed into him, 
breathed into an inanimate body, made simply of the elements of the earth, and made something that could speak and respond. Counterfeit creation that results in the image speaking and the image causing the death of all those who refuse to worship the beast. Once again, Jesus said, don't start with the revelation, start instead with the prophet Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 3, in verses 4 through 6, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, one of the early archetypes of the Antichrist, we see him displaying this same kind of bent, this this same kind of motivation. The satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn or the pipe or the lyre or the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. What you see here is not the Antichrist going back and mimicking Nebuchadnezzar, what you see in Nebuchadnezzar is the spirit of lawlessness at work that will eventually find its full manifestation in the work of the Antichrist proper and the false prophet. But he's not done. He's not done with a counterfeit resurrection. He's not done with a counterfeit creation. The mark of the beast Much has been made about it. Scripture tells us little. If you want to look to the Greek, the word is charakma. It means to cut, engrave, to brand. It's actually a technical term that was used for the mark of imperial Rome on official documents and coins. It definitely has the concept of ownership tied to it. What we see here is the counterfeit of the sealing of the Holy Spirit upon the people of God. What we see here is the counterfeit mark of the kingdom that sets His children, adopted through Christ, apart from the lawlessness of this world. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, expanding upon the things that we talked about, about the nature of our inheritance being with the Holy Spirit being the the literally the earnest money that's the deposit guaranteeing the fullness of the come, the fullness to come. In Ephesians chapter four and verse thirty, Paul continues with that concept and says, "Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." If you remember, we saw that particular sealing being carried out in real time back in Revelation chapter seven, verse three. Well, let's just go with verse one for context. Where John writes and says, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed, literally until we have marked 
the servants of our God on their foreheads. The concept of the mark of the beast is not an original concept, just like everything else he does. It is mimetic. It is a counterfeit of the concept of the mark of God himself. counterfeits God's seal. A seal that when it's legitimate marks His people out for an inheritance through the adoption of Jesus Christ that is lavished upon us. It is our provision. It is our life. I mean, in the I Am statements of the Gospel of John, Jesus says, you go in May, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He is our provision. And we look in Colossians every time I get a chance. Man, not only did He create all things, but in Him all things have their being. In Him all things hold together. Here you see counterfeit provision. Take the seal. Let me mark you as your Lord and your owner and I will give you provision. I will give you the things you need for they will not be able to buy or sell without it. I think there's a word of caution here for the church. One of the things that the church has historically had a tendency to do. And I mean, we've even seen it in our lifetime. Is to mark out things and say, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly, sometimes in you know unwarranted zeal, um, but sometimes correctly, to mark out things and say, man, we, we won't do X. Right until we get backed into a corner where not doing X actually really does cost us something. And then we go, well, we guess we kind of lost that one. I mean, if I don't want to do that. I don't think I should do that. But if I don't, I can't do Y. And we have to be able to do that. Well, here's the ultimate version of that. We got to be able to buy and sell. You got to be able to eat. You got to be able to buy food. You got to be able to buy clothing. Say, so, well, do you really? Well, if you don't, you'll die. Yeah. Yeah, you will. But see, that's never been a deal breaker for Christ. As a matter of fact, that seems to be where it's always going at the end. It certainly was where it was going for him. This is hard for humans to accept. I mean, it was hard for Peter and the apostles to accept. He said, listen, guys, I'm going to be handed over to the Jews. I'm going to be lifted up. They're going to kill me. And they said, whoa, 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 no, 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 not you. He said, man, we can't do X. Well, they're not going to let you eat. Well, we got to be able to eat. No, no, you don't. But we'll die, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hey man, nobody wants to starve. I'm 
not making light. Nobody wants to starve. Worse yet, you know, you say starvation is really not that bad after about the first seven days. Worse yet, what if they won't let you have any water? Now, that's a miserable way to die. You can do the what ifs all day long. But the reality is, is this. The man of lawlessness who knows the flesh inside and out better than any other creature in existence will leverage every single thing that is in our flesh against the people of God to, if he cannot break us, to at least make us miserable. Oh, but there's counterfeit provision. If you'll just take a counterfeit mark and a counterfeit adoption and a counterfeit Holy Spirit and a counterfeit Christ and a counterfeit Father. John says it requires wisdom. It requires wisdom because idols aren't supposed to speak, but this one does. And it does because the idol itself is not speaking, but there is a spiritual reality and a legitimate power that lies behind the deception. There is a spiritual reality to the signs and wonders that he does. Once again, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9-10, through 10, Paul writes to the church there, and listen, you know, you want... Do you, if, okay, we don't have time, I'll be real quick. If you ever wonder, why does Paul write so much about eschatology? Why does he write so much about lawlessness and the coming of the man of lawlessness, the, the fact that Satan is the restrainer? Why does he write so much of this stuff to the church at Thessalonica? Well, historically speaking is because that's where Satan's throne, quote-unquote, was in the day. These people were up to their neck in lawlessness. They still have this throne. It's in a museum in, in Germany. It's massive. It's like the size of this building. Took it apart rock by rock and rebuilt it in Berlin. There's a spiritual reality to these signs and wonders. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica and says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Notice, the, the downfall of the people that take this mark is, is not that they're not intelligent enough to ferret out the deception in the sign. Because the sign is a real sign. It comes with all power. Their problem is they refuse to love the truth. That's the problem. Jesus Christ said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Love the way, the truth, and the life. You won't be deceptive by false signs and wonders. They refuse to love it. In Matthew chapter 24, in verse 24, Jesus said, For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and Wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. What you see here is legitimate. These are not parlor tricks. He's not a snake oil salesman. He's not a charlatan. He's really doing this stuff. You're really dealing with the guardian cherub. It's not just smoke and mirrors. These signs are real. It's not the first time that we've seen it. As a matter of fact, throughout Scripture, when you see these kind of let's call them high archetypes of the Antichrist, when you see the ones that Scripture really highlights and says, okay, here is what a really good picture of lawlessness looks at, looks like when you see Nebuchadnezzar 
when you see um, when you see Darius and Xerxes, when, when you see Alexander the Great, when when you see um, when you see the Caesars in Rome, particularly Nero, when you look all the way back to the Exodus and see Pharaoh, you see these kind of signs accompany the paganism that goes along with them. In Exodus chapter eight, or sorry, seven, verse eight. In Exodus chapter seven, verse eight, it says, "The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle." Then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh so that it may become a serpent. And so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. And then Pharaoh summoned the wise men. Now, I want you to remember, this statement that's about to be made is not a quote. This statement that's about to be made is the narrative that's being provided by Moses himself writing the Exodus as inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the next statement is a statement that is without error. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, and still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now I'm sure you can go to Vegas or New York City or somewhere and find you an a, uh, illusionist that is throwing down sticks and, and, and making them to look like they become serpents. But we all know it's not. That is not what's going on here. Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said these guys did the same thing Aaron did. And Aaron threw down his staff and it legitimately turned into a serpent. They did the same thing. They threw down their staves and they legitimately turned into a serpent. And then he said, their staffs became serpents. There's no smoke and mirrors here. This is the spiritual reality of lawlessness. And you see the spiritual reality of the hierarchy of authority when Aaron just gobbles them up. This is not simply a false religious system. This is not cultish brainwashing and intimidation this is this present darkness one that is testified to by overwhelming power man the application for the Christian is the importance of sound doctrine they were deceived not because the signs were wondrous, they were deceived because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. What becomes of the church that relies solely on experience for its spirituality and its estimation of truth? What becomes of that church is destruction. Jesus says in Matthew 24 that they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for My name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Why? Because lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Man, the answer 
to combating lawlessness, the manner in which God preserves us so that we don't fall into deception when the signs are real is by loving His truth and knowing therefore the difference. To be the mescaline that Daniel talks about, those that are wise, why are they wise? Because they know their God. This is the defense against a deception that has no other defense. We must insist on sound, biblically defined doctrine. We must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that we may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Titus 1 9 through 10. We must not rely on experience. We must not rely on what we have seen with our own eyes, heard with our own ears, and touched with our own hands to guide our understanding of the truth. We must rely upon the Word of God. Here we see in the dragon the counterfeit of the Father. Here we see in the first beast, the Antichrist, the counterfeit of the Messiah, the Son. Here we see in the second beast, the false prophet, the counterfeit of the work of the Holy Spirit. And while it is infinitely far off the mark of the reality of the Trinity, it is perfectly good to deceive the natural man at every single count. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Here is a call for those who love the truth and so are saved. Jim, you pray for us.